I'm a regional historian in a region that has a hell of a lot of labor history. Some of the most dramatic strikes and labor actions of the early 20th century were around here, so there's no end to the stories from local miners, railroad workers, and their families. Some of the stories are heartbreaking, like the story of a streetcar operator during the Denver streetcar strike in 1920 who dragged his brother's body 10 blocks to a hospital after one of the goons hired by the streetcar company to break the strike shot him in the head. Someday I'll tell you about that strike. To this day, it's the most violent dispute between transit workers and federal troops in the entire country. Some of the stories are more fun, though, like when I stumbled on a miner's journal entry about meeting Oscar Wilde. In 1882, Wilde gave a speaking tour throughout the U.S., and he stopped in Leadville to talk to a theater full of silver miners about art. Some of the miners, including the one who wrote the journal, took him down a mine shaft to drink with him and scare him a little bit by leaving him down there, but according to the journal, Wilde outdrank them all and left them all passed out at the bottom of the mine shaft. What got me started with history like this were the primary sources. It's easy to forget that people who died 100 years before we were born had inner lives, sometimes very rich ones. Sometimes we don't understand their thought processes or beliefs, but we can always recognize their humanity, their love, their anger, their fear. There are a few stories I've never really known what to do with. The one I have in mind is a letter from a silver miner in the small town of Creed to his wife back in Kansas City. It was an old series of scanned letters and documents related to the Colorado silver boom that hadn't been digitized or published in anything. A friend of mine who works for the University of Missouri mailed them to me with the note, hope there's something useful in these. She didn't offer any information about how they'd come to be in the school's collections, only that she bumped into it in a special collections box while looking for legal documents. Joseph Coleman wrote this letter to his wife Clara sometime between 1892 to 1894 just one in what seems to have been a correspondence that started when he came to Colorado in the hopes of making a fortune on silver. My colleague in Missouri did some checking and found a copy of an 1889 lease at the county office that refers to a Joseph and Clara Coleman listing his profession as a clerk at a law office, but had very little other documentation about either. The letter in question is several pages long in narrow but surprisingly legible handwriting. The writing is far beyond many other miners I've read, which corroborates the idea that he was a law clerk. The first section of the letter is Joseph assuring Clara that he's in good health and describing his living conditions with perhaps a bit of gentle editorializing. Then he goes on to ask about a few affairs regarding someone named Clement and some money owed. The last portion of the letter, though, is what has stuck with me. Rather than try to summarize, I'll read directly from the letter here so you can get the same kind of experience I did. I must close this letter by relating an unsettling event a few nights past. I tell you this not to worry you, but because it has weighed heavily on me, and I've been unable to properly explain it. Reverend Hall and I were two of the last to leave the mine on this night on account of an unfortunate accident that took the life of one of the newer boys and severely injured Pfeffer. The latter will be unharmed, thank the Lord, but that night he had to be carried back to town on a litter pulled by one of the mules. As a result of the commotion, the reverend and I were asked to bring the shaft basket back up and secure the gate before walking back to town. Only a 20 or 30 minute walk under most circumstances and during fair weather. Reverend Hall is a towering, jovial man with a great brown beard and a soft high voice. He represents the Congregational Church, of which I was largely unfamiliar before my journey west, but in our few conversations, 
He always had nothing but kind words, even considering my lack of attendance at his services. His father was a general for the Union during the War of the Rebellion, and the Reverend appeared to have taken his father's valor as inspiration for his own calling. He would often come by the mines to bring food and water, and often helped carry burdens to and from wagons, and I do not believe any of the man regretted his calling upon us during our work. I tell you all this about the man because of what transpired that evening, of which I will continue to relate. After securing the mine entrance, we began to descend the hill to the main road leading back to the town and our lodgings. Normally the way is lit by the brilliant stars of the moon, but this night, clouds obscured the light from the sky. Reverend Hall walked ahead slowly, taking great care so as not to injure either of us with a false step in the darkness when the other men had already returned to town. We walked like this for perhaps ten minutes, at which point we found ourselves deep within the woodlands of the foothills. Many of the other mines require a wagon or cart to get to and from, but ours is the exception. There are a number of threats in the woods at night, not least the cougars and bears, both black and grizzly. Stories of their attacks are common in the bunks after a day's work, and rumors abound that one of our foremen who disappeared the month before last was the victim of a group of cougars. Regardless of this event's likelihood, the forest after dark is no place for men to linger. Reverend Hall had readied his Winchester rifle as soon as the slope of our path became less treacherous, and I believed him when he said he had won awards for marksmanship as a boy. The tall trees seemed to curl over us, obscuring even the cloudy sky and leaving me shaken in a way the night has never before touched me. Before we arrived at the main road back into town, Reverend Hall stopped and held his finger to his lips as he glanced at me and then into the void. I heard nothing beyond the almost deafening roar of insects and the creek off on the other side of the road, but the reverend seemed to be listening for something in particular. After several moments, he nodded with some uncertainty and began to walk again, slower this time. As we came around a bend in the trail, my heart very nearly stopped. Sprawled across the road was the figure of a man, arms outstretched in a way that reminded me of Christ on the cross. We approached with some trepidation and examined this figure more closely, unsure if we would need to provide aid of some kind. Soon, however, we saw it was not a man, but merely something in the shape of one. Thin wooden planks emerged from the ends of the sleeves of a frayed shirt and prospector's trousers, and the head was a small white sack stuffed with some sort of grass or hay. It was similar to a scarecrow, but the nearest fields must be dozens of miles away. I opened my mouth to whisper a question to the reverend, but he shook his head ever so slightly. Silently, he began to advance again. We continued down the trail for several more minutes until he stopped once again. I stopped as well and listened, hearing the insects and wind, but now something else as well. Behind the noise of the trees, there was a deep rumble that almost reminded me of an earthquake similar to the one we experienced in Buckner those years ago, though this roar was unaccompanied by any shaking or motion of the earth whatsoever. It sounded as if it had emerged from behind one of the smaller peaks looming over us. Without warning, the reverend broke into a run, and it was only then that I realized he was possessed of knowledge of the meaning behind our current situation, of which I was completely ignorant. I sprinted to follow him when I began to hear, even above my frightened and labored breathing, that same roar from moments before, but now growing louder every moment. The reverend leapt off of the path into a pile of brush as if he were an acrobat in a circus, and at that moment the roar became unbearably loud. 
I wiped my brow, and when my hand uncovered my eyes, I was stopped as if the Lord himself had cast lightning from heaven upon me. A dozen or so yards in front of me, from the trees where Reverend Hall had been standing but a few moments before, flashed a colossus of such size I at first was convinced it was a boulder or some other large piece of earth. An alabaster mass that glistened in the moonlight in the manner of what reminded me of a reptile burst forth from the trees and crossed the path before disappearing into the trees on the opposite side, all within what seemed like the span of a single heartbeat. I stared at the path, uncomprehending, when Reverend Hall took my shoulder and shook me. His mouth opened as if to scream, but no sound emerged. Instead, he pulled me in front of him and shoved me into a run. This uncharacteristically physical act from the Reverend made the shock of the previous incomprehensible sight sink deep into my soul. The roar of the mass faded at the same time as it seemed to rise up the peak opposite where it had emerged. We ran until my lungs felt as if they would burst, and I fell to my knees off the path and grasped a tree so as to hold myself upright. I could not even look about me, so great was the heaving of my chest. I could hear nothing besides my breathing, including the reverend kneeling down beside me and gesturing me closer. I don't know if we can hide from it nor outrun it, he whispered. I asked what was pursuing us, and he whispered what sounded like, the boulder, it will return. He stood up and pulled me to my feet as well. I began to protest, but the look on the man's face silenced me immediately, the same look which was perhaps more frightening to me than the horror I had just glimpsed, and is not one I shall soon forget. The rumble began again, growing louder even more quickly than before. Reverend Hall once again took me by the shoulders and physically moved me into a run. As I stumbled down the path away, I looked over my shoulder to confirm that the Reverend was following behind once again, but instead I found him only advanced a step onto the path, one arm still propped against the tree. Only then did I notice one of his feet turned at an abnormal angle. The roar was almost deafening by now. I, I, I faltered, attempting to slow myself and go back for the man, but once again the look in his eye encouraged me otherwise. He nodded at me, eyes wet, and then turned to face the source of the roar. This source was visible to me for but a moment, but I fully believe I shall see it many more times in dreaming before my life is through. I will describe it in as little detail as possible so as to spare you the horror that has gripped me ever since. From the trees opposite the reverend once again burst the white mass, only this time I was able to see that it was not a boulder, despite what the reverend had told me. In the moonlight, I could see a great black maw ringed with a glint of teeth as long and jagged as the sharp stones jutting from the roof of a cave. Just visible to the side of the mouth was a colossal blood-red eye whose pinprick black pupil must have been the size of a man's fist. Rather than being a round, boulder-shaped mass as I had previously supposed, this beast was the shape of a thick snake, or perhaps a slim whale, transposed from the ocean to the mountains in the middle of the continent. The white or gray skin was indeed that of some kind of reptile, scaled and leathery, below a sheen of some sickly fluid. Before I could even cry out, Reverend Hall had disappeared entirely within the jaws of that leviathan, which itself had disappeared into the trees on the side of the trail from which it had emerged at first. The roar, which I now surmised to be the breaking of trees and boulders in the path of the beast, 
could be heard once again ascending the mountain. I hope you do not think me a coward, Clara, but I ran. I pray that never again in my life will I feel the terror those next few moments brought, terror such that I lost all sense of myself until I came to on my hands and knees in front of the miners' hostel back in Creed. My chest burned such that I was certain death was imminent. But after an amount of time I am unable to recall accurately, I could make out behind the roar of blood in my ears the shouted questions of the town's sheriff, no doubt having been roused from sleep or some other late-night activity. Others joined him, including one of my fellow miners, Lenz, who asked me if the reverend was falling behind me. Upon hearing his name, the story burst out of me in a no doubt incomprehensible fashion, and I could see the sheriff growing angrier and angrier until I shouted to Lenz, the boulder took him, it fell from the peaks and took him away. Upon hearing this, Lenz's face grew stormy, and I saw him explain something to the sheriff in hushed tones. Within minutes, Lenz had brought me into the hostel and laid me upon my cot, where I promptly fell asleep until awakening the next day, long after the rest of my compatriots had already gone off to the mine for the day. Reverend Hall's face in those last few moments will always be with me, and for his courage in the face of our horror, I hope to make sure his memory is a blessed one. There's about a page left after this, but it mostly contains greetings to various friends and family in Kansas City for Clara to disperse. He doesn't say anything else about whatever he saw. The thing Joseph heard as Boulder reminded me of something I'd read years ago but couldn't find the specifics of, so I dug out an old notebook from a class I had taken. And after a few minutes of searching, there it was. A footnote in a history book on the Rocky Mountains had mentioned a monster called the Bolter, which had been blamed for the disappearances of several miners throughout the silver boom. Details were extremely sparse, but according to this note, this Bolter would somehow descend from the tallest mountains to devour hapless travelers and then disappear back into the thick forests of the Rockies. The author said there had never been any documentation of this and wasn't even credible enough to warrant the term cryptid. I tried to look for any documents about the fates of either Joseph or Clara, but the only thing I could find was a notice in the Kansas City Herald of her death from tuberculosis in 1909. It mentioned her being survived by a daughter, but didn't give her name. My friend at U of M searched and asked around, but couldn't find any evidence or documentation that Joseph Coleman ever made it back to Kansas City.